Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing Dr. Newfeld's series based on the book of Daniel called Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. Today's message will be based on Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 49, and it's entitled The Triumph of the Kingdom of God. Now let's join Dr. John Newfeld. I love the old hymns of Isaac Watts simply because he understood his Bible and the gospel so well. Listen to the first verse of one of his. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Watts saw what his Bible taught him. There'll be a time when every square inch of property on this earth will be ruled by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And for how long will this go on? Till moons shall wax and wane no more, he says. And it's a poetic way of saying forever. Now, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, was about to hear that very truth. But he wouldn't have believed it if the revelation had not come to him in the way that it did. The king was having a reoccurring dream and it deeply disturbed him. But because of his suspicion that his wise men were not to be trusted, he demanded they tell him what he had dreamt in his bedroom. And when we come to Daniel 2, verse 31, on to the end of the chapter, we find Daniel standing before the king, ready to tell the king what he had dreamt in the privacy of his own mind. I'm reading Daniel 2, 31 to 35. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to comment a lot on this vision, for for Daniel interprets this dream in great detail. But once Daniel reveals what the king of Babylon was dreaming, we can understand why he was so upset. We noticed that the statue itself was of an immense size and that it was impressive and frightening at the same time. We also notice as we move from the head to the feet, the nature of the statue changes. The head is of gold, impressive and of great value, but as one looks down, it becomes steadily less valuable until one looks at the feet and realizes at that moment the statue must have been less than stable. If the head is of gold, One can only imagine the weight of the statue with a pure golden head, and the feet are partly iron and partly clay. We we have to assume that even on its own, the statue would crumble with time. But of course, it was not time that destroyed the statue, but that it was struck by a force so great that that it not only collapsed the statue, but in the end, the statue was so thoroughly destroyed that not one trace of it was left. It must have disintegrated into powder and was blown away. Then the rock that struck the statue is transformed and it becomes steadily larger until it forms into a mountain immensely larger than the statue was and the mountain simply envelops the earth. Well, that was the dream and that appears to have been the same reoccurring dream and it continued to disturb the king greatly. 
I have no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar wondered if he was the statue and that some force was about to destroy his kingdom so that no one would ever remember who he was. And for a king who wants to leave a legacy of his greatness behind in history, that would be extremely frightening. But Daniel has now done what no other person could do. He described in vivid detail exactly what the king had dreamt, and having done so, the king's now all ears. If this man can tell me the contents of my dream, I'm ready to hear what he thinks it means. So let's read Daniel's interpretation. We'll slow down our reading, take it one section at a time, so we'll start with verses 36 to 38. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, I can't help but wonder whether Nebuchadnezzar was just a bit relieved at that point. Apparently, this is not a vision of his kingdom being attacked by a stone. The statue was far from completed in his time, so the stone must be some distance away. This is not an immediate and imminent threat. Furthermore, the vision tends to be complementary. He is the head of gold, the most expensive and precious part of the statue. And if we think about it today, Babylon itself was an amazing achievement. Its hanging gardens are thought of as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Both Herodotus and Pliny say the circumference of that city was about 53 miles, making it about seven times the size of London. It was surrounded by two sets of walls, the outer one being about 12 feet thick, but the, but the inner one, if you could have breached the outer one, well, you would have come to the next wall at 23 feet thick. The entire city was surrounded by a massive moat, And during Nebuchadnezzar's time, another wall was constructed, which apparently was about 80 feet thick. The city must have been jaw-dropping. But I haven't even begun to talk about the splendid architecture, which also must have been stunning. For instance, because Babylon was located along the Euphrates River, the king's palace was actually located on both sides of the river with a massive and splendid bridge connecting the two. A massive temple by the hanging gardens up multiple terraces must also have been stunning. The world had never seen anything like it before. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. But what must have gotten Nebuchadnezzar's attention was the reason for all of that. God had decided to give him that. Nebuchadnezzar was no more and no less the person that God was using for his purposes. See, what's fascinating is that it's not that Babylon is the head of gold, but it's that Nebuchadnezzar is. We know from history that he reigned for 43 years and that after his death, the kingdom only lasted another 23 years. You really can't separate ancient Babylon from Nebuchadnezzar. He is the architect God used to build this kingdom, but it ends. And with that, Daniel moves to the next part of his interpretation. I'm reading now verses 39 to 43. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. 
And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, before we go on, I have to acknowledge that there has been a fair bit of disagreement among some Bible teachers as to exactly what it was that Daniel was referring to. Some argue that these parts of the statue do not refer to specific kingdoms, but rather a general reference to kingdoms of the earth that come and go until the final kingdom of God arrives. Now, I, for my part, find that explanation unlikely. Since the head represents a very specific kingdom, it seems natural then to assume that all the other features of the statue do as well. Furthermore, this vision seems to correspond well to Daniel 7, in which Daniel has a vision of four beasts, which ends with the everlasting dominion of the kingdom of God. In both of those visions, we are now given the advantage of looking back in history and seeing exactly how the dream played out. See, after the head of gold is a chest and arms made of silver. We know from history that the Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC and that Daniel lived to see that event. We also know that her great king was Cyrus the Great, whom Isaiah the prophet mentioned by name hundreds of years before he lived. But why is he depicted as silver rather than gold? How is Cyrus inferior to Babylon? Well, the answer must be that Cyrus did not have the same authority that Nebuchadnezzar had. The Persians placed a restriction on the power of kings so that once a king made a law, he was not allowed to change or annul the law in the way that a Babylonian king could. And so, as glorious as the kings of Persia were, they had none of the imperial splendor of Babylon. And the third kingdom, the one made of bronze, represents the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Greek democracy would further limit the power of kings, and so, as to kingly power, the power of their leaders was further limited. What Nebuchadnezzar saw next, however, once understood, must have taken his breath away. This must have been quite a revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, a young man used by his God, was there to interpret this incredible dream sent by God himself. Much more to come. You know, this past couple of months, we've been receiving gifts to support the partnership and ministry that Back to the Bible Canada will share with Back to the Bible India. Not only will the teaching of Dr. Newfeld be broadcast daily in English, Hindi, and Telugu, but in the new year, Dr. Newfeld will be conducting a pastor's training seminar in India. We want to thank those who have given financially so far. But if you haven't given a gift yet, and if ministering in this way in India is something God has laid on your heart, perhaps you'd consider providing a gift today. You can call to support the developing work in India at 1-800-663-2425, or you can donate online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Daniel, the young Hebrew exile from Jerusalem, by God's sovereign design, is standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king on earth, and is explaining to him God's grand designs for history. 
He has told Nebuchadnezzar of two kingdoms that will follow his own, but the story of the flow of world history is about to reach a climax. Having described the head, the torso, the waist of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel moves down to the legs. The legs of the statue are made of iron. Iron has none of the splendor of either gold, silver, or bronze, but iron has strength that none of these other metals possess. Now, from the perspective of pure, unbridled power, the Roman Republic had far more power than its predecessors. Notice the terms that Daniel uses. Breaks in pieces. Shatters all things. Crushes. Indeed, that fits the description of Roman power. Go to Israel and stand on the top of Herod's fortress of Masada. Look down to the desert floor way below. The Romans built a ramp from the bottom to the top of a large mountain cliff. That was an incredible feat to utterly destroy what was thought an impregnable fortress. Such was their raw, unstoppable power. All who tangled with Rome were shattered, broken in pieces, and crushed. But now the explanation becomes just a bit more complicated. Daniel now moves from a description of the legs to a description of the feet and the toes. He now describes what seems to have been a very different kingdom entirely. Let's make sure we understand it. It is made of iron and clay, both strength and weakness. The reference in verse 43 to mixing in marriage seems to indicate a kingdom that is not like other kingdoms. That is, it's not made of one people group, but of many. The fact that iron and clay don't bond or hold together means there is no natural alliance that holds this empire together. He seems to be describing an empire in which a great deal of disunity is present. Its inherent social, racial, and perhaps even religious diversity and differences weaken it even while it still has great strength. See, at this moment, I need to acknowledge that there is, again, some disagreement among Bible teachers on this point. Do the feet and toes represent a fifth kingdom, one that is yet to come, or do they represent a further description of the Roman Empire? Now, my view is that everything depends on how we understand the last part of Daniel's interpretation, that is, the one to the king's dream. And I'm, I'm reading now verses 44 to 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, but that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God had made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. See, there are those Bible teachers who argue that the kingdom spoken of here is the kingdom that has begun already with the, with the earthly ministry of Jesus. Remember that when Jesus began to preach, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember also that Jesus taught that his kingdom was like a mustard seed, which would seem small and insignificant and would one day rule the entire earth. And so, say these Bible teachers, since the mountain grows, it must refer to the kingdom that was begun in the Roman Empire, where Jesus was crucified and raised and where the church began. This kingdom that Jesus preached will strike down the kingdoms of the earth and he will reign forever and ever. Now, as intriguing and as attractive as that sounds, I think it's wrong. When Pilate asked Jesus whether he was a king, you'll recall what he had already told him. My kingdom is not of this world. 
In Romans 13, Christians are told not to fight the kingdoms of this world, but rather to submit to governing authorities. The unique nature of the kingdom of God in this present hour is that the good news of God's reign has come, but that the present hour, evil empires are allowed to continue, that by God's design, the greatest number of people might find their way through to him. And that's not what Daniel is describing in this vision. Daniel is describing not Christ's first coming, but his second coming, when the kingdom is inaugurated when Christ returns. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 30, then he will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that is the rock that strikes the statue. That's the second coming of Christ, whose reign destroys all the kingdoms of men, and that's when he reigns from shore to shore. And that gets us back to the final part of the statue, the feet with its ten toes. This empire happens right before the second coming of Christ, and not immediately after the fourth, that is, the Roman Empire. In Daniel 7, Daniel's vision would see ten horns growing out of the fourth empire. And in Revelation 13, verse 1, we read, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns. Now, in Revelation, this beast corresponds with the last kingdom of Antichrist, which will precede the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who will smash Antichrist's empire to pieces and set up his kingdom, which will never end. So, in summary... Shortly before the second coming of Christ, ten kingdoms or nations will unite to form a coalition out of the ruins of the Roman Empire. Now, just so we're clear, I cannot say whether the number ten is intended as a literal or a symbolic number. In Revelation, many of the numbers carry a symbolic meaning. So, the number ten is a symbolic number referring to completeness. And so the number 10 might simply mean the complete number of nations that will rule the whole earth until the reign of Antichrist. So I'm making no predictions as to how many nations combine in the final end-time empire or what it will look like. I suspect that just like all the other images in Daniel, they make perfect sense after they've happened and really not before. And so what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar is that he is but one kingdom in a line of five kingdoms leading to the end of the age and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar had never realized that all of history is leading to one final point. Nebuchadnezzar is merely being used by God to fulfill his larger purposes. Now to the end of the passage. I'm reading from verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The kings answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. See, it's only at this moment that we see how what began as a crisis— 
I mean, the king has a dream. The king is troubled. The king's going to kill all the wise men, including Daniel. All this crisis was arranged by God. God had intended that Daniel become one of the most important men in Babylon, and this for a number of reasons. The first is the most obvious. God was going to show his people, Israel, that God is not just the God of Jerusalem. He is the God over Babylon, and he is the God over all the nations and the God over the future of nations. All of that ignorant fascination that Israel had had with the idols of foreign nations was now shown for what it was. Sheer nonsense. The idols of Babylon, the most powerful nation on earth, they were nothing. The God of Abraham was the only God who directed all of human history. You know, second, this, this dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar so that he and all his kingdom might know that every nation on earth exists only as long as God, in his infinite wisdom, determines that it will last. They exist because of his pleasure, and they will cease to exist at his pleasure. And third, the only place where anyone's ultimate loyalty should be found is in the kingdom that is to come. That's the only nation, the only kingdom, the only empire that will never cease. As Isaac Watts sang, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. How about you? Where's your ultimate loyalty? If it's not in Christ and in his kingdom, you're placing your hope in a statue that is soon to be smashed to pieces and whose remnants will blow away like chaff. John, I love how you concluded today's message in a very practical way, but I want to go back just a bit to where you talked about the difference between being symbolic and literal in respect to 10, but all of these things regarding the end times. Yeah, there are a lot of numbers, especially in Revelation. So the number three, the number four, the number seven, the number 10, the number 12, all of those have symbolic meaning. And sometimes a reader is forced to make a choice. Shall I assume they're literal or is John actually attempting to communicate something by the use of those numbers? And I think at those moments, we always do well when we're less than dogmatic. Thanks so much, John, for today's message. And join us again tomorrow here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Here with me to conclude the day today is Isaac Dagno. He's team leader of Back to the Bible Canada's Young Adult Ministry, In Doubt. Now, I know many of our listeners would be familiar with In Doubt, but for those of us who don't know, why don't you give us a quick summary as to what the ministry is all about? Yeah, thanks, Ben. In Doubt is a unique ministry that seeks to provide biblical truth to a wandering generation. Uh, through a weekly podcast, we talk about some of life's most prominent issues, things like identity, sexuality, relationships, and faith. And I get to talk with leaders and pastors around North America who know these issues well. Along with the podcast, we write articles and reflections, and we also create teaching videos that help young adults live out their faith today. So when it comes to the church and young people, why is in doubt so necessary today? Well, you know, take three kids who grew up in the church. Uh, by the time they hit young adulthood, two of them have stopped attending church. And half of those who stopped attending church stopped calling themselves Christians. Something happens on this bridge from teenage to adult, and In Doubt is there as a guide. In Doubt points those who are in doubt in so many areas of life to Christ. And we do this by talking about the issues we know they're going through. That's fantastic. So where can we find out more? And if you want to, where can we find out how to support In Doubt? 
Well, yeah, all, all of our content is free and can be seen and viewed at indoubt.ca, and there's an option there to donate as well. Thanks so much, Isaac. And if you want to know more about Indoubt, you can go to indoubt.ca. Or if you know a young person or someone who might be interested in the material of Indoubt, let them know. indoubt.ca or call us at 1 800 663 2425.